And we are back here on Unusual Sources, 93.3 CFMU-FM, bringing you the news from around the world and the community all the way to 93.3 CFMU-FM here at McMaster Radio. I'm very pleased today to be interviewing Eve Engler. We're going to be discussing his new book, which is called A Propaganda System, How Canada's Government, Corporations, Media, and Academia Sell War and Exploitation. So, Eve, thanks very much for joining us on the program today. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, you know, this is uh, a momentous event because uh, it's part of a tradition now in Hamilton and elsewhere. We we are among the first to announce, advertise, promote, and have the uh, official launches for your books, Eve. Um, you've been at the forefront of reporting on Canadian interventionism abroad, imperialism, militarism, uh, what mining corporations are doing, all sorts of things. And um, it looks to me like the recent book, uh, this new book here, uh, ties together some of these issues and you discuss uh, a a whole propaganda system and I'm just wondering since you're using terminology like propaganda system and things like that, I'm wondering to what extent your new book borrows from or is influenced by uh, manufacturing consent Uh, It is it's it's, uh, certainly the section on uh, media um, is uh, influenced by manufacturing consent, um, but I but I take a much uh, a broader uh, look at things than just uh, the dominant media. So I, I look at the book looks at the role of uh, different uh, military funded um, think tanks, the role of the military's fairly significant history department, and it's long. It's played a very influential role in academia and in producing histories of Canada's military uh, uh, endeavors. I look at, um, you know, different uh, think tanks that are funded by leading Canadian capitalists, uh, people like Peter Monk. Uh, um, I look at just the immense role of the military, uh, their PR department, hundreds of people that are employed uh, full-time to uh, basically try to uh, uh, convince Canadians that the military is is doing uh, good things uh, uh, abroad. So it's it's broader than um, than uh, the just a sort of narrow look manufacturing manufacturing consent sort of narrow look just at the dominant media. Um, I do look at the dominant media. I look at the role of the CBC, uh, its close ties historically to uh, to uh, military and external affairs officials. I look at you know the, the the thrust of the corporate media, but the book itself is uh, the, the propaganda system that I'm referring to is a is a broader propaganda system in terms of convincing Canadians that this country is a benevolent force uh, internationally. Right. From what I gather, it looks like you're talking about and writing about something that's designed to promote certain ways of thinking and done in multifaceted or manifold ways. So, as you said, you have CBC, you have academia, you have research, um, you have all sorts of avenues for certain views to be promulgated. What broadly is being defended here? It seems to me that you're talking about, for example, the Canadian military or militarism or sort of justifying Canada's interventionist role abroad. Is that what this this whole system is designed to promote? It, I would say the, the most simply, I mean, the, the book is answering the question, why do 9 in 10 Canadians believe that Canada is a force for good in the world, even though 
the evidence is overwhelming that Canada historically was uh, uh, supported the British Empire's endeavors around the world, and since World War II has uh, generally supported U.S. Empire's endeavor, U.S. Empire's endeavors around the world, and all and simultaneously Canada's foreign policy has been about advancing corporate interests. So, despite an overwhelming abundance of of facts. Uh, demonstrating that Canadian foreign policy is not this sort of benevolent endeavor, uh, why is it that the population, most of us, believe overwhelming that, that Canada is? And, and so, and basically, I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's all these different facets to it. I mean, from a simple element of Canadian mining corporations uh, spend significant money on trying to promote uh, what they're doing abroad, or try to d- d- deflect criticism of what they're doing abroad, uh, um, and it generally works in in inverse relation to how much abuse they 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 are responsible for abo- abroad. So a company like Gold, which is responsible for all kinds of abuses abroad, spends heavily on you know, cor- corporate social responsibility initiatives and PR initiatives designed to sort of uh, portray itself positively. Um, that's at you know very. That's a, a very specific level of one corporation, uh, but then it you know it, it it builds up from there, and and the biggest PR department uh, in Canada, from what I can tell, is the Canadian military, uh, and uh, the Canadian military obviously uh, wants to uh, make Canadians believe that it its international operations are are you know for for defending Canada or for some benevolent purpose. Um, and it has a lot of people that uh, spend their days um, figuring out different ways of, of trying to uh, to uh, you know make that argument or to to plant the seed in people's heads that uh, that uh, you know the boys the boys in the military are, are good people or, or, or whatever. Um, so so it's not it's I wouldn't say it's as simple as uh, there's like one specific uh, ideological objective of the pro- of the Canadian foreign policy propaganda system. Uh, the, the the broad objective is to uh, um, basically portray what they're doing as good, be it at the individual level of a corporation or at the uh, you know at the level of of, of the military. And uh, you know, foreign affairs also has a significant uh, PR apparatus. So certain actors are pursuing their self-interest, uh, and and we see this being reflected via propaganda through media and and things like that. Now, it's all very interesting, and uh, it sounds like you've been really uh, busy doing your research. Basically, from what I gather here, your book is dealing with censorship, information control, influencing uh, on subjects ranging from Haiti to Palestine and other countries. I'm just wondering if maybe you can give us examples in in, in a country-specific way of the way in which opinion is being formed uh, and the public is being influenced on specific countries and, and issues like that. Well, take one specific thing, like uh, on the question of Israel. Um, there's a number of uh, Israeli studies departments, th- at least three at Canadian universities, that have been established, that were established by people who have very clear perspective on on Israel studies. Uh, the, the the most uh, stark example is at Concordia University in Montreal, uh, uh, the uh, Israeli Institute uh, of Israeli Studies. Um, and uh, Israeli was somebody who fought in the Haganah in 1947, 1948, in the during the uh, what Palestinians refer to. Oh, that you know, that's a that's a institute that was set up in large part to respond to pro-Palestinian activism at Concordia. 
Um, so that you know, that's one uh, small example. There's literally in the book I detail you know into the dozens of examples of different institutes, uh, different departments that are funded by uh, generally by you know rich people that have some uh, political uh, self-interest or political viewpoint that they're trying to uh, to promulgate. Uh, in the case of uh, you know take take, take in, the, in the case of the media or take uh, you know Canada's role in Haiti, which is a particularly uh, stark example of, uh, of media bias. Um, well, I go, I look at some of, you know, how, how much, uh, coverage there have been, uh, in the, in dominant Canadian media of, of, uh, you know, different instances of, of, uh, important elements of the story of Canada's role in overthrowing Haiti's elected government and undermining Haitian sovereignty over the past, uh, 12 years. And you find that something like, you know, the Ottawa Initiative on Haiti, where Canadian officials, uh, planned, to uh, you know, worked with British or worked with uh, American and French officials to to plot the demise of uh, Jean Bertrand Aristide's government. Um, uh, uh, this was all reported on uh, in 2003 by L'Actualité, Quebec magazine. Um, well, you find that it's only been mentioned uh, in Canadian, dominant Canadian media, three times uh, since uh, this Ottawa Initiative of Haiti took place. Um, all three times was by uh, little mentions uh, by solid, Haiti solidarity activists. Um, there's never been a, a report uh, since the time of the 2004 coup uh, that's actually looked at uh, in, in any major Canadian media that's actually looked at the Ottawa Initiative on Haiti. Um, so, you know, this is a pretty uh, uh, central uh, piece of information in understanding what's going on in Haiti over the past uh, uh, 12 years and a, a incredibly central piece of information about Canada's role specifically. Um, and it's basically completely ignored by the dominant media. And, you know, a quick uh, Canadian newsstand uh, check, um, uh, you know, shows this, you know, incredible bias in the dominant media. Um, so, so, you know, the, 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 the examples are, are almost endless. Um, in the book, I do, I do uh, more than other books uh, I've done over the past few years. I really, I actually bring in some personal anecdotes because I, I have a whole bunch of personal experience with the bias in the dominant media, um, and and one of the ways I, I contrast it is with my experience writing uh, op-eds um, for. Uh, uh, on domestic issues. So I worked for a couple of years for the Communications Energy Paperworkers Union, and I wrote about a dozen op-eds uh, for the union, usually under the name of, uh, of the president of the union. Um, and I got them published in you know, different papers across the country. Uh, but they were all on domestic issues. Uh, obviously, they came with the weight, the institutional weight of the union. Uh, my personal experience writing op-eds in the Canadian, for the Canadian corporate dailies over the past uh, 12 years on foreign policy issues is completely horrendous. Uh, you know, I've submitted dozens and dozens of op-eds. I believe I've had four that have ever been published. Um, um, so th this is just, you know, one sort of small uh, personal uh, uh, anecdote about, about how um, foreign policy is the, is the realm of, of media and Canadian political affairs that is the most uh, uh, biased in favor of power, uh, where there's the least range of debate. Um, uh, and there's, you know, all kinds of different uh, examples in the book that, that uh, you know, make that point from, from both personal, personal historical examples to uh, you know, different research that, uh, that I uh, bring to the fore. 
Well, for those who are just tuning in, of course, we're speaking with Eve Angler. He's Canadian author, journalist, activist, and his most recent book is entitled A Propaganda System, How Canada's Government, Corporations, Media, and Academia Sell War and Exploitation. Obviously, this ties together so many of the issues you've been working on um, from Again, from mining and what corporations are doing to um, responsibility to protect interventionism in Haiti to our unbalanced position on Israel and Palestine and all sorts of other issues. I think it's really interesting, and I'm glad you mentioned that there's this sort of um, discord between reporting within Canadian journalism on foreign issues as opposed to domestic issues. Um, You can often get some level of accuracy in the corporate media on a domestic issue. If there's something about migrant workers or what a union is doing or something in Canada, you can get, if you know, you can push to get reporting that um, is some kind of reflection of reality, perhaps. But when you get into foreign policy, then it becomes really, really, really difficult. You mentioned the difficulty in getting op-eds in, but it it seems the the room for discourse really, 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 really narrows once you start talking about foreign policy, and especially Canadian foreign policy. Um, You've had so much difficulty uh, getting the truth out about Haiti, for example. Uh, There was more of a lockdown in Canada than there was in the United States during the coup period uh, when when they were pushing out Aristide. In 2004 to 2006, you had a lot of activity by the Canada-Haiti Action Network, thanks to yourself and a number of others, um, showing what Canada was doing to remove a democratically elected government. And it doesn't seem to have changed much there, because you had problems once again in 2010, 2011, during the uh, the earthquake response. And I'm wondering if you can tell us you know, how Canadian journalists responded or didn't respond to the, the situation of covering what exactly Canada was doing in the aftermath of the earthquake. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the coverage has been basically horrendous going back, you know, since the coup and, you know, before the coup. One example that I was particularly stark uh, for me that I, I, I uh, looked into was um, after, in 2011, the Canadian press reported, uh, found, uh, got internal government documents showing that uh, after the earthquake of, of 2010, uh, where into the hundreds of thousands of people were, were killed. Um, after the earthquake, according to the official government documents through access to information, um, the concern in Ottawa was over security and was uh, explicitly stated concern that the post-earthquake uh, political vacuum would lead to uh, a popular revolt uh, and uh, Aristide who at that point was in exile in South Africa, being able to come back to the country. And um, in, in response to that, Canada sent 2,000 soldiers after the earthquake and did not send its heavy urban search and rescue teams, which are based in cities across the country, which are designed basically in the case of natural disasters or different forms of disaster to, to uh, you know, help uncover people from buildings, to provide medical help, etc. So Canada militarized its response to this devastating uh, um, human catastrophe, and, uh, and the, we have the proof of it. The Canadian press uh, got the access to information documents showing what the motivation for sending the troops was. I did a Canadian newsstand search on this Canadian press article. Um, I, how I had remembered it was that it was an example of uh, a story that was published, but then just sort of went down the memory hole that, you know, the, it, it's a 
provide some profound um, context about what Canada's role, Canada's motivation uh, in Haiti. Um, media reports on it, and then they just can, you know, sort of continue on as if it as if it, as if it never appeared. But in fact, the bias was much worse than that. I found that this Canadian Press article was only published in the Kamloops Daily News. So dozens and dozens of newspapers across this country that all have Canadian Press wire service that often depend on Canadian Press for you know much of the copy in their newspapers decided this profound piece of information was just unnewsworthy um, and 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 uh, you know refused to put it uh, in in their paper. That's just you know one example, but it's uh, one of many examples of a very um, quite frankly impressive. Uh, the fact that news editors across the country were understood, they, they, so, they had so deeply internalized uh, a sense of, you know, benevolent Canada or a sense that Canada's, you know, trying to help Haitians out or uh, all this kind of stuff. They internalized it so deeply that they, they, they understood that this was, uh, this was unnewsworthy, this, this, this Canadian press, this, you know, uh, incredibly revealing Canadian press report. Um, so, you know, that's, that's one example, you know, just a more recent example of Haiti. There's a, I just wrote a piece about uh, this anti-Haitian screed by CBC reporter uh, 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 Evan uh, Dyer, um, basically providing the justification for the fact that there's an upcoming election on October 9th. Uh, Washington, about two months ago, this publicly announced they were not going to be supporting this election. Uh, Canada, just in this piece about two weeks ago, um, announced it was not going to be supporting this election. And basically, this is the most credible uh, presidential election Haiti has had since 2000, and Washington and Ottawa are basically trying to undermine the poll. And so how do you justify... Um, providing uh, material and and you know observing and and uh, financial support to elections all these years in Haiti when the most popular political party Aristide Sami Lavalas is, is excluded um, um, but now when there's a, a, a more credible election being taking place all of a sudden Washington and Ottawa won't provide any any assistance and in fact trying to trying to undermine the poll um, and this CBC article basically uh, is is the is the uh, justification for for this, which is basically we've been trying to help the Haitians out so much. Now we have to give them some tough love, um, and uh, it's just you know one more example in a long line of incredibly biased reporting uh, on Haiti. And it basically it 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 reflects the power imbalance. Right, Global yeah. Affairs Canada has a lot of power. Um, the majority poor in Haiti have very little power. Yes, so uh, as you're. Pointing out uh, when Washington's candidate is in power in in Haiti, or when it looks like they're going to win, Washington takes a more of a, a laissez-faire approach to the elections. Let things go ahead. Let the government stay in. But if uh, a popular candidate in Haiti is going to win uh, or is in power, then Washington and the media become uh, very d- disenchanted with the, the Haitian government or that party. They, it's it's very partisan stances that are taken by the Canadian and U.S. foreign offices, and and it's reflected in the media. And we see some of manufacturing consent here, uh, drawing from, from that work where there's self-censorship is practiced by journalists. Uh, they know what their editors want, or they know what's not going to get printed. And also the fact that many people in the journalistic establishment have, as you say, heavily internalized the dominant values of U.S. or Canadian imperialism, exceptionalism, and so on. Uh, so it's not needed to push the editors or, or, or harass or influence them. They already agree with the government. I guess we're sort of getting at this, what you're calling a, a state, corporate, academic, NGO, media network. 
there, there's relationships between uh, these people. Um, so it kind of, I mean, this whole book and what you're doing and the, uh, the struggle you've been pointing out to get accurate reporting out on Haiti and other issues, it points towards this problem we have of uh, a real, real need for alternative media because um, without you, without radio programs uh, that discuss these issues, without alternative media on the internet, we're stuck with um, this nexus of people. And I think you even you noticed that when you were writing for the Huffington Post uh, or trying to get an article in there, um, you're trying to discuss some of these issues, and uh, you you had referred to or had been able to point to interviews or sources of evidence to back up or support your claims and assertions. And Huffington Post basically said, well, we're sorry, we only, we only publish mainstream sources. So if this isn't in, you know, CBC or the National Post, then it's not real and we're not going to publish it. Yeah, no, that's one of the uh, of a flagrant example of, of uh, bias. Uh, the, on two occasions, uh, I've written about the responsibility to protect doctrine, uh, criticized the responsibility to protect doctrine, and discussed how Liberal governments, uh, uh, Trudeau or um, Chrétien and uh, Paul Martin governments, um, uh, invoked the responsibility to protect doctrine to justify uh, intervening in Haiti and overthrowing the elected government in, in 2004, and of course, um, you know, leading to thousands of people being killed. So, certainly not protecting uh, the population, maybe protecting capital, but certainly not protecting the population. Um, but and uh, and both occasions, Huffington Post refused to uh, publish it, and and the grounds was uh, the one occasion where they stated explicitly. Uh, I linked to uh, to an interview that Anthony Fenton, um, independent researcher, uh, academic, uh, did with uh, Denis Paradzi, who was the person responsible for the Ottawa Initiative on Haiti. An interview he did where he uh, mentioned referred to the responsible respect doctrine to justify the, the Canada's plotting to, to oust uh, Aristide. Um, and then also uh, the Canadian ambassador in port au prince at the time of the coup, um, uh, Kenneth Cook, um, his, he also invoked responsibility to protect doctrine to justify, in the days before the coup, um, uh, anti-Aristide uh, positions. Uh, and basically, the Huffington Post editor sta- stated explicitly that uh, because the sources of information weren't coming from, uh, you know, a major media outlet or a corporate media outlet. Um, therefore, uh, it wasn't reliable, and it was only being reported on by this, by this, uh, you know, one researcher, Anthony Fenton. Um, and you know, it's it that's a uh, uh, that's a uh, you know self-confirming uh, uh, dynamic where if 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 no corporate journalist is willing to look into the matter, uh, and then corporate media outlets are don't consider reliable if it hasn't been looked into by corporate journalists, uh, you're in a bit of a, a little bit of a bind in terms of uh, uh, discussing the matter. Um, yeah, it's, but, you know, it's, <laughs> it's really convenient, isn't it? I mean, if National Post says something is true, then other news outlets can say, well, here, we're re- referencing the National Post, but if you guys have something out there, and if it's not picked up by one of these outlets, then it just simply doesn't exist. And, and it, it's all throughout uh, the foreign policy realm, right? I mean, the, uh, refer again to the Ottawa Initiative in Haiti. Uh, solidarity activists across this country, in, in almost every community, probably 30, 40 communities across this country, there was discussions at one point or another about the Ottawa Initiative on Haiti. Uh, uh, yet, no corporate media picked it up and looked into it 
there's, you know, Anthony Anthony Fenton also uncovered the access information documents around that that, you know, add some detail to, to uh, you know, what we know, what already been reported, uh, uh, no reporting. Um, but, it, but, you know, this is, it's, this Haiti is a particularly stark example, but you find similar things with, uh, with other issues. One thing like um, uh, FIPAs, uh, Foreign Investment Promotion Protection Agreements, that the Canadian government has signed with um, African countries over the past uh, decade or so, a whole bunch of these. Basically, they're designed to protect Canadian mining interests uh, in Africa and give them the ability to sue uh, an international tribunal, uh, secretive international tribunal, local governments for lost uh, profit-making. Um, in one instance, the Harper government signed one with a... Uh, with a uh, post, with a transition government that was, uh, you know, only supposed to be transitioning the way towards uh, democratic elections after a long popular struggle, um, and uh, the Harper government signed one of these FIPA agreements. What they they're basically in force for uh, for two decades. So once they're signed, uh, future governments are locked into it uh, for for two decades. And um, and uh, these FIPAs, I went and looked for any media reporting on these FIPAs, critical, nothing. There's nothing that I can find anything about critical uh, reporting about Canada's uh, signing FIPAs with African governments, particularly the one with regards to Burkina Faso. Um, uh, so, you know, it's, Haiti is one example. FIPAs are another, uh, you know, mining, the mining industry is another example. Um, and, you know, the basic, the basic rule of thumb is um, the weaker the place is, the bigger the lies. The more, the weaker uh, a, a country is, the more the Canadian government can tell, you know, just wild uh, fibs about how they're, you know, trying to bring democracy, trying to do well, um, when in fact often they're doing the, the total opposite. And basically, the correlation between what ideas make it out there and power is a very close uh, correlation. And I think this book, uh, um, uh, you know, strengthens the case to... to to say, you know, to, to sort of, you know, prove that um, um, that's the case, certainly with Canadian foreign policy. Yeah, it sounds like you're uncovering a situation where powerful interests across the country will have a certain worldview, and somehow that gets reproduced in, in our dominant media institutions. Uh, it sounds interesting, and I, I think, yeah, you're probably going to look at some hypotheses there, uh, look at some ideas of how things work. It should be interesting for all involved. So I just want to point out to our listeners that you're going to be in Hamilton this month, uh, not too long from now, uh, launching this book, and the first event is uh, in the, the city proper. It's in uh, the New Vision United Church at 24 Main Street West, and it's happening October 19th. So Wednesday, October 19th at 7 o'clock p.m. Uh, so 7 o'clock the 19th at the New Vision United Church at 24 Main Street West. Um, and then you're also going to be on the campus here at McMaster. And that's going to be the next day, Thursday, October 20th at 1230 at the Student Center room to 30. Um, and I think that's being done through OPERG. You can find it on their, their website there. So um, we have two chances to get your book, and everyone should. And uh, it sounds like it should be another classic. And uh, <laughs> if this is what one Eve Angler could do, imagine if we had 100 citizen journalists. But uh, maybe that's for another day. So Eve, thanks so much for being on the program with us today. Thanks a lot for having me, and, and also to the great work that you do. And, you know, that the flip side to the, the propaganda system is the need to build up develop, uh, you know, media that's willing to uh, challenge power. I couldn't have said it better myself. Thanks very much, Eve. Thank you. Bye-bye.
And that, of course, was Eve Angler. And he will be in Hamilton, what, two weeks from now? Uh, so you definitely want to go and get that book and ask him questions. It's always great because he talks about the book. He explains it so you can tell your friends what it's about, even if you didn't read it, so you can at least pretend to have read it. But no, no, you should uh, you get his overview because then you can ask him questions. And um, if you're uncertain about what he's trying to say or some of the examples, he remembers all the detail or a lot of it because he's uh, been investigating a lot of these cases and issues for a while now, whether it be Haiti or Israel or mining companies or the war in Afghanistan or whatever, uh, responsibility to protect. He has experience in all these areas, and it looks like he's really starting to tie things together, which is what we need to advance uh, in these movements and the anti-war movement and things like that. So we're very appreciative of that. So uh, again, be sure to come to those events. And um, we have other events, notices and stuff. Stuff like that for Hamilton, so stay tuned. We'll be right with you.